Hey, it's Jeremy Myers, and this is the Redeeming God Podcast. So welcome to today's podcast episode. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, specifically in regard to the sealing of the Holy Spirit. What is the sealing of the Holy Spirit? How does it work? How is it received? What does it do? And also, specifically, how can you know that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Those are some of the questions we hope to answer today in this study of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Thank you so much for joining me. We're also going to consider a question from a listener about Calvinism. So if you have, well, I'm not actually going to address the question about Calvinism, um, but sort of the background question that I feel was ultimately asked by the listener who sent in that question. So uh, that's where we're headed today. Thank you so much for joining me. In fact, uh, let's just get right into the question from the listener. Please check your mailbox. A new message has arrived. <laughs> Okay, so here's the question that the listener sent in. I've been reading your posts about Calvinism with much interest. For a while now, I think I don't believe it to be true. I have to say, the church we are members of is not very heavy on this. They never or rarely use the tulip lingo. I have been raised in a classic, reformed, heavily legalistic family. I've also been afraid of not being chosen. What if I thought I believed in Jesus, but just kidded myself? It hampers my own life and my witness with others. I would love to see many come to Christ, but the line, God loves you, is nearly impossible because I cannot see in the counsel of God. Also, changing my view on, for example, Sunday being the Sabbath, makes me panic, because does changing my view on such an important matter mean that I am on my way to become apostate, or in Calvinistic terms, to have the proof that I wasn't one of them after all? Does this make sense? All right, so that's the question, and, and uh, the person who sent this in asked to remain anonymous, and the question goes on from there, which I'm not including here, but I think you get the point. Let me just say a few things about the question and then move on to sort of the underlying issue that I see is the result here. There's sort of these two questions, one about Calvinism and one about the Sabbath. Um, first of all, if you don't know what TULIP is or Calvinism, that's okay. You don't need to. I've written a lot about it on my blog. Eventually, I want to write a series of books about Calvinism. It's about maybe one-third of the way written at this point. I'll get that eventually, hopefully, in 10 years from now. Who knows what? There's so many book projects on my plate right now. Uh, but I hear this thing a lot about being afraid and whether or not they really believed. You know, you say you believe, but what if I've just deceived myself? What if I'm, what if I'm a false believer? Um, what if I have temporary faith or spurious faith, these sorts of things? Okay, those are the sorts of concerns and fears that you often hear from people who are Calvinistic, some of the leading theologians even. I've heard R.C. Sproul and others who, uh, in, in moments of honesty, have said that it's possible for them to, on their even deathbed, to fall away from Jesus and thereby prove that they never really were elect, never really had eternal life in the first place. And so that sort of idea uh, leads to a lot of fear in the minds of some people. I've heard uh, John Piper say similar things. He's a, a strong Calvinist. Okay, and then this idea of the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday, by the way, not Sunday. 
Um, and, and that's a, a completely separate issue there. But the, the person who sent in the question says that um, if they change their view, then this makes them panic. Because, you know, changing a, a central theological belief in their mind maybe proves to them that they really were not elect. Um, didn't weren't really um, have eternal life from, from from Jesus. Okay, so so how do we deal with this? And uh, in, in uh, let me just back away from the question and sort of approach this from a completely different perspective. I'm not going to talk about Calvinism or the Sabbath or anything like that. Here's what I find. And, and by the way, I used to be a Calvinist, a five point uh, a Calvinist. And so I have faced many of these similar fears in my past, and I get emails and comments on my website uh, all the time, every day, from people who have who are facing these almost exact same fears. And, and I know they're not alone. There's millions of Christians around the world who, who face these similar fears. And so one of the reasons I started my website so many years ago, boy, close to 20 years now, uh, is to help liberate people from this sort of fear, from the bondage that is created in their hearts and minds because they have bad ideas about God. We don't realize this, but bad theology is chains, chains on your heart, chains on your mind. It leads you, it keeps you captive in a prison of bad theology. And so I, I write and I teach to help liberate people from these bad ideas about God and thereby, thereby find truth and find freedom and find joy in their life as a Christian. So one of the, uh, there's like three principles, there's, well, there's many, but I, I sort of have boiled it down to three principles that I have found very helpful in my own life and which I have found helpful as I counsel other people who, who face these sorts of questions. And as I and you see these same ideas pop up all the time in my teachings and my writings as well. Okay, and they help deal with these sorts of issues and questions and fears that this listener has sent in in the question. So here's number one, this first principle. Number one, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of a sound mind. That's straight from Paul in 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear. All right? So if you believe, if you have uh, theological beliefs that lead you to fear for your future or fear that you might not have eternal life or fear this or fear that, okay, uh, then this is a, a red flag, a strong indication that your beliefs are not of the Spirit, are not of God, and are not of correct, are not correct. If, you, if what you're believing leads you to be afraid for your future, afraid about your eternal life, afraid that God hates you or doesn't actually love you or can't forgive you, or whatever the case may be, guess what? That belief is likely not of the Holy Spirit, not of God. Okay, so that's the first principle. That's one of the things. Look, if, if, if you have fear in your life, based on some theological thing, some biblical teaching that you, you've heard your pastor say, you've read in a book, that is a good indication that uh, you should not hold that belief because it's not correct. Okay, secondly then, that's the first principle. Secondly then, God invites us to reason with him. Well, we see this all over the place, but you know, in Isaiah 118, where, where God says, come, let us reason together, okay? Questions are invited. They are welcomed by God. Uh, going back to that that passage I just read in 2 Timothy 1.7, uh, God wants us to be of a sound mind. 
The spirit wants us to have a sound mind. And of course, how do you get a sound mind? Well, not by avoiding questions, but by finding answers to your questions. God doesn't say, don't question me, don't doubt, right? No, he invites questions. He allows questions. He encourages questions. There is no question that is going to offend or hurt or scare off God. He gave, God gave us a mind and he wants us to use it. Okay? So if your mind has questions or doubts or fears, look, bring them to God, face them, question them. And this has been so important for me in my life. And here's why. I want to know the truth. Okay? You want to know the truth too, I hope. Every person on earth, I'm pretty sure, wants to know the truth. None of us want to be deceived. None of us want to know lies, to believe lies, do we? Okay, well, and how do you know the truth? I imagine if you're like me, there have been times in your, you can look back in your past, and if you've ever changed your beliefs about anything, how did that happen? It only happens in one way. You only come to know the truth about something, or you only come to know that you are believing wrongly about something. How? By asking questions, by doubting what you believe now, and seeking answers to seek the truth. Okay, look at it this way. If what you believe is really true, then that truth can stand up to any and all questions, right? Any and all challenges. If what you believe in true is true, then it can stand up to every question that is thrown against it because there will be an answer for it, okay? At the same time, if what you believe is not true, if what you believe is false, well, how do you discover that? You discover it by questioning it, by challenging it, by doubting it even, and then investigating it. And eventually, those, those questions, those investigations will lead you to the truth. Okay? So either way, you come to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All right? So, so that's the first thing. Don't be afraid of questions. Embrace questions. Chase questions. Do the investigation. Do the research. Do the reading. Because that is how you will discover the truth. All right, so first, uh, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Don't, don't be afraid. Uh, as a second, God wants us to use our minds. He's given us our minds to use them, and that's going to involve questions and doubts and uh, investigation. Third, then, and here's sort of what wraps these two together. Until you understand, number one and number two, okay, that you shouldn't fear and that God invites you to question, until you understand those two points, you will never, ever, ever make progress as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're living in fear, and you're afraid to learn. You're afraid to ask questions. You're afraid to step out in faith and follow Jesus wherever he leads because you're too terrified, too petrified to make a move because you might make a mistake. Oh, what, if I, what if I try to follow Jesus and I'm wrong? Look, if you're, if you're too afraid to move, then you're never going to make progress. Okay, but once you get rid of fear, and once you realize that even if you fall, Jesus will hold you up because nothing can separate you from his love. Okay, once you realize that, then you can step out and you can free yourself to make mistakes. You can free yourself to realize, you know what? Probably a good percentage of what I believe right now is wrong. I want to discover where those wrong things are, and that only comes by questioning. And yeah, you know what? I might question some things that are actually correct, but that's okay, 
Okay? Because I will discover the truth in the process. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to trip. I'm going to fall. Yes, I will even sin. Uh, I'm going to step off the path at times. But that's okay because I do not live in fear. I live in the knowledge that God loves me, that Jesus accepts me, that I am forgiven uh, by him because he promises it in Scripture. And so no matter what, I will move forward with Jesus. I will not be afraid. And I will, I will follow the questions and the doubts wherever they lead so that I can learn the truth. That is how you start to make progress in your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay? So those are sort of the three principles that have really helped guide me and lead me to where I'm at today. And so I no longer fear. I no longer fear about the future. I no longer fear about making a mistake. Uh, I do make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes. I still sin all the time. But guess what? Where Jesus has led me to today has shown me it's okay. Jesus has me. He's got me. Okay? He's got my back. He's holding me in his hands, safe and secure. Uh, and, and so that is a wonderful place to be. Jesus, God will always love me. He will never stop loving me. And so that's a wonderful place to be and allows me to to ask questions and seek answers and even have doubts and uh, step out in uh, exciting and challenging and different ways that I might not have had the courage to do in the past because I know that no matter what, Jesus will not let me fall. Okay, so those are the three principles I think will help you. Now, look, if you're saying, yeah, but Jeremy, I wanted some real answers about the Calvinism stuff or the Sabbath stuff— Look, I have that written all over my website. I'm going to include several links to my studies on Calvinism in the notes section for this podcast study. Just go to redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and, uh, or you can search Google, what is the ceiling of the Spirit, redeeminggod.com, something like that, and uh, you'll find those links. Um, and then several links as well to my studies that I have performed, that I've done on the Sabbath. There's a lot on my website, but uh, I'll include, I don't know, five or six of the most important ones uh, in, the, in the notes for, for this study. Okay? So that's, uh, that's what I will include there. Okay, um, with that in mind, let's move on to our study of Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So in a previous study of Ephesians 1.13, we discussed the differences between the sealing of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we looked, uh, as part of that study, at the four things that happened to us uh, immediately upon believing in Jesus for eternal life, which is using the acrostic RIBS, R-I-B-S, regeneration, indwelling, baptism, and sealing. Sealing is the one we're focusing on here. In uh, this study, we're continuing of our study of Ephesians 1.13 and, and uh, moving on into verse 14 as well. Okay, and uh, specifically in regards to the questions, what is the sealing of the Holy Spirit? Let's start there. Paul says here in Ephesians 1.13 that we have been marked with a seal. So what is this seal? Well, uh, Paul is not just pulling some terminology out of the, out of the hat here, okay? This had a very important symbolic uh, imagery for Paul, especially for the people in Ephesus at his day. In Paul's day, seals were used in at least four ways. First, you could sometimes put a seal on a letter. You see this in movies sometimes. They have that wax that they melt 
with a candle and they, they, they pour the wax onto the fold of the letter and then they press their seal into it. This helps prove that the letter is genuine, that it has not been read, not been opened by the, the, the messenger. And it also the seal helps show that it was written by who it claimed to be written by. Okay, so kings might seal letters with their signet ring. Uh, and we, you know, we do something similar today when you go get a document notarized. Okay, that is a modern form of sealing your letter, your document, your legal document, showing that the, the, the notary, of course, you know, has a witness and they look at your ID and they sign it and you sign it and everybody is it's, it's supposed to show that, yes, the person who signed this legal document really is who they say they are. And I, the notary, have sealed it. Uh, it's a very similar to the way sealing worked in Paul's day of letters and legal documents then. That's the first form of sealing. Second form of sealing was uh, a seal was sometimes placed on goods or merchandise that traveled from one place to another, sort of to indicate who they belonged to and where they were going. Uh, this sort of seal indicated ownership. All right, we do the same thing today. You ever send your kids off to summer camp? You probably write their name on the tag on the inside, right? Why? To show that this shirt belongs to little Johnny or little Susie, and hopefully they bring it back with them when they return from summer camp. We might write your name in books. In fact, I have a little embossed stamp that I used to stamp on the first page of all of my books just to sort of show that it was mine. I don't do it anymore because it's too time-consuming to stamp all the books I have, but I used to do that with all the books I got. Uh, ranchers do it with their cattle, right? Uh, they seal their cattle with a brand to show ownership, to prove ownership. Um, so a lot of those similar things is the way they, they did something similar in Paul's day. The third way seals were used in Paul's day is to show something that, uh, show that something was authentic. Okay. And again, we do something similar today. You buy clothes, oftentimes, maybe in one of the pockets, there's a little a piece of paper showing, showing that it has been inspected and improved by somebody. It might have their name on it and maybe the date that they inspected that, that piece of clothing. Even the little logo often on clothing or something is a, a seal, a, a, a proof of authenticity. Okay, the Nike swoosh or whatever it is, it's a, it's a, it's a brand which is showing authenticity, showing where the product came from. They did something similar in Paul's day. The fourth type of seal then was for protection or warning. Uh, remember, Jesus was put in a tomb and uh, Pilate told the soldiers to put his personal seal over the tomb. Uh, why? Uh, because there was a rumor going around that, that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead and Pilate didn't want his, the disciples of Jesus to go and steal the body and thereby prove, you know, make the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Of course, Jesus did rise from the dead, and you know the story what happened with that. But again, the point was that you have this seal, which is a seal of protection or seal of warning, basically saying, stay away, stay out. This is off limits. This is trespassing for you, sort of an idea. Again, we do similar things today with no trespassing signs or, or uh, property limit signs or whatever, saying, don't go here, keep out, keep away, sort of an idea. Or even when it's dangerous, you might have the radioactive, you know, warning sign, poison sign, all sorts of things that help show people to stay away. Okay, so those are the four types of seals in Paul's day. We have very similar types of things today. 
Paul says here, God has placed a seal upon us. Uh, I think Paul probably has in mind, to some degree, all of these. Uh, it's a guarantee that we are genuine, right? We're the real deal. Uh, we have been branded, in a sense, by the Holy Spirit with a permanent mark. It shows that we are owned by God, that we belong to him. It shows that we are approved by God, right? Uh, and also, of course, the Holy Spirit provides us protection, provides us security. And so uh, that is, uh, all of these forms of sealing are what uh, Paul has in mind here, I believe. The Holy Spirit does all those things for us. Okay, now, is this mark visible to you and I? No, it is not. Uh, we cannot see it. You can't put your finger on your shoulder or your chest or your forehead or anything like that or your hand, show you that you've been sealed. You can't say, there it is, there's my seal. Okay, so this does cause some consternation, some confusion in, in, in some people because we sure would like to see that seal. It would really help us. Sometimes I feel it might be helpful if God did, did make it visible to our eye, visible to other people's eyes. Sure would alleviate a lot of concerns in the minds of some people. But um, it's, it's, not, it's not revealed that way. It's also not revealed with some sort of spiritual manifestation like speaking in tongues or seeing visions or, or holy laughter or you know, rolling in the aisles or anything like that. It, it, it doesn't, the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit does not, is not shown in any of those sorts of ways. Okay? It's not visible in any way in the physical realm. It is a spiritual seal. Uh, we could maybe say, I suppose, that uh, according to Galatians 5.22, the sign of the Holy Spirit is if we have the fruit of the Spirit, which of course, you know, includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you have these sorts of attributes and you're a believer, that's a good sign, good indicator uh, that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, you know, we're not seeing the seal itself, but you can see the results, the consequences of the seal. You can't see the wind, but you can see what the wind does. Jesus makes this exact point to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Can't see the wind, but you can see the trees move, okay? It's the same with the Spirit. You can't see the seal, but you can see sometimes what the Spirit does on our hearts and on our minds as we do develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the sealing of the Spirit is an invisible spiritual seal, we cannot see it, we cannot feel it, but we, we can know that we have been sealed. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But uh, first, let's just talk a little bit more about this sealing of the Holy Spirit, specifically what we learn about it from 2 Corinthians 1.22. There's really two places in the Bible that talk about the sealing of the Spirit. One is here in Ephesians 1.13, and the other one is over in 2 Corinthians 1.22. And so Paul only mentions this ceiling in two places. Why? Well, it's because the towns of Ephesus and Corinth had something unique about them, which other towns in the Roman Empire did not have. Both Ephesus and Corinth were great centers for the lumber industry. Um, okay, uh, so what would happen is a raft of logs, the, the, the lumberjacks, whatever they called them back then, they'd go out into the forest, cut down the trees, and then take it to the nearest body of water. It was a whole lot easiest to float logs down a river or across a sea or a lake or something than it was to load them up all onto a cart and have oxen pull them. Okay? It, it, much easier to float them than to pull them. So in Ephesus and Corinth, they would build these raft of logs, and they would float them uh, from the Black Sea. 
uh, up to uh, or over to Ephesus or Corinth. Okay, and at that point, they had these great lumber yards. And uh, so the lumber merchants would come and look over the logs that are floating there in the water, and they would make their selections of the ones they wanted. You would say, I want that one, I want that one, I want those 10 over there, I'll buy these two over here, okay? And I don't know what they're looking for, size maybe, or length, or type of wood, I don't know, but whatever. They made their selections, and when they would make their selections of the logs they wanted to purchase, they would do two things. First, they would cut a certain specific wedge upon each log that they had bought. Uh, this would mark that it had been bought, that it was sold and paid for. And also it showed who it belonged to. And guess what? They called it a seal. So this mark on the logs was a seal. And that's what the merchants would do. Of course, they're not done. Then what they would do is they would put a deposit on the logs. They would not pay for the whole thing. Payment would be completed upon delivery. Okay? Uh, but initially they would just put a down payment, a deposit upon the logs. And, um, and then once the, the log sellers made final delivery, then the merchant would pay for the rest of the logs, okay? Would pay the rest of the money. That is exactly what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 1.13, and especially look at Ephesians 1.14. Paul writes, who, he's referring to the Holy Spirit there, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Who's that? Us. Okay, we are God's possession because we've been marked with the seal. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Throughout this whole section of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Paul has been talking about the riches and the blessings and the inheritance we have as being members of the family of God. And now we see here that this isn't just some pipe dream. God has given us a Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that we will receive this inheritance, this redemption, because we are God's possession. Okay? So you see this, this imagery here that the, 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 the uh, Christians in Ephesus would immediately understand because of the lumber industry there in their town. The Holy Spirit is a seal and a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance just like those logs. Holy Spirit is going to provide us with new bodies. It's the promise of God uh, and an inheritance when we finally get to heaven. Okay? And that might be nice to think about. How do we know it's true? Because God has given us a down payment, a deposit, right now, in the form of the Holy Spirit, which promises, which guarantees that the inheritance is ours, that it is waiting for us, okay? Uh, God has made a purchase. He's purchased you and he's purchased me. And to, to prove that he's going to follow through, he has given us a down payment, the deposit of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's very similar. You go buy a car, you go buy a house, you make a down payment, earnest money when you buy a house, okay? That tells the seller you are promising to buy the house, Tells the car dealer, you are promising to buy it. Now, if you back out, you lose your down payment. Thankfully, God does not back out, okay? He, he never uh, goes back on his—he's he, not going to abandon his down payment, okay? He has given, a given us a deposit in the Holy Spirit. He has promised that what he has begun, he will carry through to completion. He will finish. 
Uh, by the way, the, the, the word for seal here, I'm sorry, the word for deposit here in 114 is the same word for engagement ring, the Greek word for engagement ring. <laughs> so in a sense, the Holy Spirit as a deposit is a form of, is an engagement uh, with between God and, uh, or Jesus and the bride, which is us, the bride of Christ. Okay, um, two people, and you know what happens in engagement, two people promise to get married to one another, and uh, the man gives the woman an engagement ring. That's what God has given to us in the form of the Holy Spirit, a deposit, a, an engagement ring, a guarantee that he will fulfill his word, that he will bring us to the redemption of our bodies in heaven, give us our inheritance and uh, the glorious eternity with all the saints. So the deposit of the Holy Spirit, sort of a little bit of heaven here and now. It's a foretaste of heaven here and now. It's uh, very important to, to see that here. And uh, by the way, also it's important to note here in Ephesians 1.14, the inheritance that awaits us in heaven, uh, it includes the redemption of our bodies. Okay, we've talked about redemption previously when we looked at Ephesians 1.7, so I'm not going to talk about that so much here. You can go back and listen to that study or read the manuscript on that podcast study uh, on, on my website. But the, the bottom line is, the truth is that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, and we have been bought back. We have been redeemed from our captivity to sin. Okay, and, and so all of this, the Holy Spirit is wrapping all of this together, the sealing, the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so um, that, that, is, that is what, that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, Final question we want to address then is how do we receive the holy the sealing of the Holy Spirit? How can you know you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit? If you can't see it, if you can't see or feel the seal, <laughs> say that five times. Um, how how do you know you have been sealed? Well, we we briefly addressed addressed this question in our previous study of Ephesians one thirteen. Let me just summarize it again for you here, though. Uh, when you believe in Jesus for eternal life, you are instantaneously sealed. The moment you believe in Jesus, at that very same moment, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, can you feel or see your eternal life? No, you cannot. That's why we accept it by faith. We know that Jesus does not lie. If Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life, We've only faced with two choices. Either Jesus is telling the truth or Jesus is lying. I believe Jesus is telling the truth. Jesus does not lie. And so if we believe in Jesus, then we have eternal life because Jesus promises it. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. Okay? If God promises that when we believe in Jesus, we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit, we have regeneration, indwelling, baptism, and sealing of the Holy Spirit, then guess what? Whether we can see the sealing or feel the sealing, or not, we take it by faith that we have it. Why? Because God does not lie. Okay? So, how can you know that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit? Well, look, have you believed in Jesus for everlasting life? Do you know that the only way you can have everlasting life is if Jesus gives it to you? You can't work for it, you can't earn it, you can't ever be good enough, you can't go to church enough, read your Bible enough, pray enough, you can't ever be good enough. 
right? Yeah, Jeremy, that's true. I, I know I can never work my way to heaven, so therefore Jesus has to give me eternal life. Great. If you believe that, then guess what? You have eternal life and you have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You have the deposit from God okay, that he has given to you in advance of your final glorification, redemption, your inheritance, your resurrected body in eternity. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Just one of the many, 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 many blessings that comes instantaneously, immediately upon faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, how can you know you've been sealed? Well, look, have you believed in Jesus for eternal life? If the answer is yes, then the answer is you have been sealed. Praise God, right? Uh, God has placed his mark on you, his seal of ownership. He has guaranteed that you will be glorified with him in eternity. This is another verse that is talking about our eternal security. This truth is taught all over the place in the Bible. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit is another evidence, another line of evidence that proves that we are eternally secure in the hands of God, okay? Because he has placed his seal upon us and he will not remove it. He will not take it back. He will not lose his deposit. So that's something to be grateful for and thankful for. Okay, so that is the end of this one long sentence. In the Greek, from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, one long sentence in the Greek that Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians with. Okay, uh, so what does he do next? Well, we'll pick up next week in Ephesians 1, 15, where Paul begins to explain what he hopes his readers do with all of the blessings, riches, and inheritance that they have received from God. And uh, so stay tuned. That's where we'll be picking up in our, in our study next week. And I hope you join me then. Thank you so much for listening to this study today of Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Hope you found it helpful and beneficial. If you want to submit a question that I might answer in a future podcast, just go to my website, redeeminggod.com. Scroll to the bottom. There's a Contact Me link there. And uh, just click on that. You can fill out the form. Also, there's a search function down there. If you want to find out what I teach about, I don't know, any passage in the Bible, or Calvinism, or the Sabbath, you know, that we talked about earlier, just, just type in your search down there in that search bar at the bottom, and uh, my website will give you all sorts of search results. And look, if you want to join my discipleship group, I've got all of these free classes and free books, uh, PDF books, all sorts of resources available to you. Just for signing up, you're going to get a free audio book on prayer, which is based on my book, um, What is Prayer?, so if you're, if you're curious about what prayer is or how to pray, how to get more answers to prayer, well, join my discipleship group and I'll send you that free audiobook as well. All sorts of resources there. You can join the discipleship group, again, through my website. Just go to redeeminggod.com slash join and uh, sign up that way. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Thank you uh, for telling other people about this podcast. It's good seeing the subscriber numbers uh, grow every week. And we will see you next week when we pick back up with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. See you then.